1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from Dakar in Bangladesh, we have Victor Mallet, who's our South Asia Bureau Chief, and also we'll have our usual slot from Ben McClanahan in New York. This week, we'll be talking about what may be one of the biggest ever bank robberies, a cyber attack on the Bangladeshi central bank, and also, as the ECB cuts interest rates, the rising pressure on banks to cut costs. From the US, Ben McClanahan will be in conversation with the head of Money.net, a Bloomberg competitor. First, though, to Dakar, or as I say, we're joined on the line by Victor Mallet. Victor, this sounds like a fantastical tale. What exactly happened? The Bangladeshi Central Bank has basically lost something like $81 million through a cyber attack. Is that right?
2: That's correct. And they could have lost something like a billion dollars if somebody hadn't spotted a spelling mistake in one of the transactions, it seems. It looks like what happened is that sometime in January, some cyber criminal, and we don't know who they are yet, managed to get a piece of malware into the system. And then on February the 4th, a whole series of transactions were done out of the Bangladesh Central Bank's account at the Federal Reserve in New York. And something like $101 million was transferred to a whole series of accounts. More than 30 transactions were made in Sri Lanka and the Philippines. It was one of the Sri Lankan transfers that triggered the alarm bells was one of the banks that was doing the transferring it seems when they saw what looked like an odd spelling of an institution and the money from Sri Lanka we understand has been retrieved but the money that went to the Philippines around 81 million dollars does not seem to have been retrieved so it looks indeed like they've lost one of the biggest amounts in banking history in cash.
1: So hardly surprising then the latest development being that the head of the central bank has resigned over this?
2: That's right. The governor, Atiyah Rahman, who is actually due to retire in a few months anyway, I believe, has attended his resignation and it's been accepted and he's being replaced. So, yes, he's, uh, I guess, for the moment, the primary victim, apart from the taxpayers of Bangladesh who've lost a lot of money.
1: Now, there was an interesting wrinkle in all of this as to who was to blame for allowing this to happen. I think at some point the finger was being pointed at the US Federal Reserve.
2: Yes. I mean, we don't actually know yet. Now, FireEye, which is a cybersecurity company, has been hired to investigate the incident, but they haven't gone public with what they've found so far. So it's not entirely clear where the mishap took place. The Fed insists that none of its systems were compromised, that all the transactions were duly authenticated and authorized, and that therefore it's not their problem. The Bangladeshis have until now been contesting that, saying that there was some problem with the authentication. But obviously the purpose of the malware, the malicious software, is precisely to replicate. And it seems that the malware cloned some uh, authorization codes in the system in some way, we don't quite know how yet, and made those transfers go through without anybody stopping them. And it was all done, incidentally, on a weekend. So it was a Thursday afternoon, I think, which is close to the weekend in Bangladesh, a Muslim country. And then there was a two-day weekend after that. So the timing of it, as it was described to me by a a senior central bank official here in Dakel. The timing was impeccable. And I think it was also a fairly slack time in the Philippines where the money seems to have gone to accounts associated with some casino businesses.
1: To many of our listeners in the West, the whole idea of cybercrime in banking is a very familiar one and there's huge numbers of these attempted attacks that go on all the time and banks are always telling us that they foil them. Do you think it's in any way fair comment to say that in this case we're talking about, as one commentator on your story wrote, this is a third world country with third world cyber protection? That's why they managed to get through.
2: I think that's probably unfair because you know they're using the SWIFT system, we think, And in order to do that, they have to have the same technology as other people using the SWIFT system. Having said that, different banks will have different and elaborate or less elaborate security protocols. And it may be that Bangladesh, like a lot of Asian banks, whether central banks or commercial banks, did not have absolutely, uh, well, obviously, did not have absolutely sort of cast-iron security for these transfers. But in terms of the electronic systems they were using, they seem to be pretty similar to what other banks would use for a similar kind of transaction. There's a kind of smart card with some codes embedded on it, and that's used to authorize the transactions. But as I said, we don't actually know what happened yet. But certainly, there is a belief among cybersecurity consultants that many banks in Asia leave a lot to be desired in terms of their vigilance on cybersecurity attacks.
1: Sounds like alarm bells should be ringing right across the region and maybe around the world as well.
2: Yeah, I think central banks and other banks are definitely very concerned about this, and they'll be even more concerned if it turns out that there was no insider involved in this and that this was a straight malware attack from the outside. That would be quite frightening, I think, for banks around the world.
1: Victor, thanks for your uh, explanation of that interesting story. Let's move on to our second story we wanted to look at the latest efforts by banks or the pressure on banks to cut costs further there's been a few initiatives but i suppose the background to this Laura is the ecb rate cut which came with a kind of blow softening for the banks or at least allegedly with another one of these longer term refinancing operations that are basically cheap cheap money for banks but it feels as if that doesn't really soften the blow that actually the rate cut and the squeeze on margins is far more potent negative effect for the banks?
3: The issue is what they actually do with the money. If you talk to bankers out there, the issue they're facing isn't actually one of liquidity, which is what the extra cheap money helps with. They're trying to find ways to actually make money. So access to cheap funds is great if you have lots of people out there who are eager to actually go into the bank, take out loans for houses, companies, cars. It's less of a good thing if you don't have that demand. So I think banks really aren't seeing too many bright spots in what happened with the ECB last week.
1: Martin, there was a report out on the broader pressures on costs, partly a result of this margin squeeze, from Oliver Wyman and Morgan Stanley the other day. How bad is it going to get, do they think? It's not great. And this report from Oliver Wyman
4: and Morgan Stanley does cite low and negative interest rates as one of the factors squeezing particularly investment banks, wholesale banks that are reliant on institutions and companies in particular, refinancing debts, taking out hedges against shifts in interest rates or changes in currencies. And with very, very low interest rates, it's just putting a damper on activity. And so revenues are falling. And this research expects a further 10% fall in investment banking revenues overall in 2016. The fall, they think, will be harder in Europe. They'll be down 10%. In the US, down 5%. And it's increasing pressure on banks to further trim their balance sheets and refocus on their core areas of strength. And it is also exposing this widening gulf between the powerhouses of Wall Street, the big US investment banks, and the collection of rather uh, stumbling European investment banks. And so they're calling for particularly these European banks to retrench from areas where they're undersized because they say that if you're not in the top five, in a particular market, you're really not making any money. So you really need to focus on whether either you are in the top five in a particular market, or you have a strong potential to get in there. And I think that, you know, we could see a lot more shrinkage among the big European banks in particular. But also, I think the US banks are going to have to take some measures. And we're already seeing that with the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, starting to trim in their investment banking activities.
1: Talking of troubled European banks, Royal Bank of Scotland has been in the news lately. Emma, you broke a story earlier on Tuesday around some more cuts on the cost side. And also there was news the other day about a new initiative in robo-advice. These both feel like efforts to trim the overheads and desperately try to get back to profitability.
5: That's right. So it has just emerged that Royal Bank of Scotland has cut nearly 450 services jobs within its investment banking division and will be setting up 300 similar roles in India as a way to outsource these functions at a lower cost. And this is part of an overall strategy unveiled by Chief Executive Ross McEwan last year to radically shrink its investment bank and refocus RBS on retail. This comes after RBS posted its eighth successive net annual loss and it now has cumulative losses of more than £50 billion since the financial crisis. But the latest job cuts announcement comes only a few days after the bank confirmed that it had removed 550 specialist advice jobs. So this is where they had a number of investment and insurance advisors providing advice to consumers. However, the bank has cut these roles and another move to save on costs and is instead rolling out over the next few months a robo-advice service. It's also increased the minimum threshold that customers must have in order to use their face-to-face human advice. And all of this follows clarity from the financial regulator yesterday, the Financial Conduct Authority, that from now on financial advice is where a personal recommendation is made to a customer Meaning that there is now more leeway for banks and other financial services firms to provide guidance.
1: Kind of automated financial guidance through an online service.
5: That's right, a lower yeah. cost way.
1: Yeah. Laura.
5: We did some looking at the cost pictures
3: across the top 10 um, European and US banks by the value of their market cap. Um, it really shows how difficult it has been for banks to cut costs because if you look at the actual operating costs across these 10 banks, it actually rose by about 2.8% in the last year. So it's showing banks really, despite all of their efforts, they're able to cut costs in one area. But then they end up taking on additional costs in other areas. So things like having to hire extra in compliance in those kind of jobs mean that it's very hard for a bank to achieve net cuts.
1: And we saw that at Deutsche Bank the other day, Martin.
4: Yeah, on Friday when they put out their uh, annual report, Germany's biggest bank, which has made big shakes about slashing the bonus pool and cancelling bonuses for the executive board. And bonuses did fall, 11% at Deutsche Bank. However, overall staff costs up 5% and staff numbers are up 3% because they're hiring more in certain areas where they want to grow and also compliance. They're taking some of the outsourced staff and bringing them back into staff. So it just shows that even with the best will in the world and the determination of someone like John Cryan, who's made this his big strategies to cut costs and make it more efficient, it's really hard
1: to do in these banks. The squeeze is on. Let's go now to New York, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Morgan Downey, who is the head of Money.net, a Bloomberg competitor.
6: Until a couple of years ago, Morgan was the global head of commodities at Bloomberg, the financial information giant, which has put its iconic matte black terminals on the desks of hundreds of thousands of traders and investors around the world. Now he's running a rival service called Money.net, determined, he says, to put his former employer out of business. Now, Morgan,
0: welcome. Uh, let's start you, with, the, uh, with the basics. What is money.net and how is it a better machine? Money.net, we are a market information platform. And so what is that? We are the piece of software behind which Wall Street professionals globally sit and consume all of the prices and news and charts and information that is available in the world of finance in real time. It is a, an application they run their desktop for their job at work. And obviously there's a mobile support and other add-ins to that, but generally it's a piece of software traders around the world and, and those in finance use to do their job every day. And it's cheaper. The core point is
6: it's cheaper than the twenty four thousand dollar annual subscription to a Bloomberg terminal.
0: Yes. We are just over a thousand dollars a year, so we're less than fifteen X mm-hmm. cheaper uh, than Bloomberg. And you've had a lot of examples of this kind of disruption over the last few years. You've got NASA SpaceX, NASA lift a payload for three hundred million, SpaceX lifted for thirty million, mm-hmm. but SpaceX also want to land the rocket. We're doing that same thing to the market data market in that we're taking a space which has had no innovation for 25 years since the demise of Quotron back in the early 1990s. And we're providing a more innovative, intuitive product that happens to be 10, 15x less expensive.
6: Yeah, well, plenty of banks want to have a pop at Bloomberg, judging by how many of them are, are part of that Symphony, uh, the, the consortium, which is launching a rival messaging tool to Bloomberg Chat. But I, I've seen some data this week from Burton Taylor International Consulting. That's a firm down in Florida. And they found that Bloomberg had a 33% market share of uh, financial
0: data last year. And that's actually up from 32 the year before. So what's going on? Well, if you look at the number of users of Bloomberg terminals globally, it has not changed pretty much in the last six, seven years they're stuck at 320 or 325,000 customers, individuals around the world using their terminal. And, you know, there's obviously, there are other players in the market as well. There's Thomson Reuters. Yeah. They're a close to $30 billion company. They've not innovated. No one ever really talks about them, which is kind of sad for Thomson Reuters, but they've kind of been the fallback to Bloomberg over the past 10, 20 years. So Bloomberg, yeah, they'll have some revenue change year to year minimal, but I think they've been stuck at a, a certain level now for six, seven years. And the sentiment in the market has changed dramatically in the last four or five years since the news snooping incident mm-hmm. oh, yeah. a few years ago. And customers. Cost- what went on there? Well, the news organization of Bloomberg, the, the reporters of yeah. Bloomberg, had access to some customer information. And the way Bloomberg reacted at the time was perceived by their customers as being sort of tone deaf and uncaring to their customer base mm-hmm. and it kind of kicked off a more deeper awareness within the financial community that there was an over-dependence on Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters mm-hmm. and since then you've actually had many more examples of that. I mean, as an example of that I think it was July of last year the Bloomberg terminal was down for almost half a day and the British government had to cancel a bond uh, trans- a fixed income transaction and so there's a huge awareness amongst them in the market that the market is over dependent on this legacy 25, 35 year old piece of software, and that is not a good situation. And then also, there's the, the fact that it costs twenty-five thousand dollars per user, and some of the bills that these large banks are in—you know—they're four or five hundred million dollars a year just for Bloomberg. And so, the scale of the of the issue for uh, the financial institutions is not insignificant. It's a huge pain point for the market, and also people want to see true innovation. You know, you've had Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters sitting there. It, they look the same as 20 years ago, and they're still very clunky, keyboard-driven navigation. Uh, when most kids, they graduate from finance school and get a job at Wall Street, they sit behind the software and they say, you've got to be kidding me. It looks like, um, you know, a Nokia phone versus an iPhone. You know, Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters are Nokia Money we try to be the iPhone and do things that Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters haven't even thought about doing because they haven't had to. There's been no competition in this space. Can you give a sense of your growth? We've got paying customers now in 57 countries. We've got all the major banks in the U.S. and a lot of banks outside the U.S. using us. We've got thousands of paying customers. Our growth rate is in the double digits per month. We've been uh, kind of expanding globally, adding more data coverage and and functionality around the world. And how are the um incumbents responding? I think Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters are both of the opinion that you know money.net is not a true competitor. You know, just like TWA and Pan Am thought that of uh, Southwest Airlines and JetBlue. You know, for us it's great because they they are obviously unable to. I don't think they even if they want to react. I don't think they can react to what we're doing. And, and it is actually a very difficult industry to create a new company and a new startup competitor. You've got a huge number of barriers to entry. And the reason Bloomberg can get away with charging twenty five thousand dollars per year or Thomson Reuters twenty. Thousand dollars a year, and also combine that with lack of innovation and a kind of almost hostility towards their customer base is that there's almost no competition.
1: Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura, and Emma here in the studio, our colleague Victor in Dakar, and also Ben and his guest in New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com/slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Key